let's open our Bibles with that to um, where Paul read our text from the Gospel of John. We will come back to this. Um, This Sunday before Christmas, we will basically be looking at three different parts to this message. Uh, It ties into, as we make our way through the Gospel of John again, just a little bit of review, John's Gospel is different. He decides to write it um, not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we call the synoptic Gospels, but around seven miracles and seven I am statements. One of those seven I am statements is in our text here in verse 25 where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. So here's one of the seven as we make our way through um, John's gospel. One of the, of the three main points that I want to make this morning is God's appointed time for Jesus' arrival the first time. Number two, uh, God's appointed time for you and I. And number three, the real reason uh, for the season. And we will hopefully be able to tie these uh, points all together. It's really a Bible study that deals with just how intricate the Lord is with numbers, times, and appointments. They're all on schedule. And I hope you see that as we, we uh, make our way through the study this morning. Let's look at the first one. God's appointed time for Jesus' first coming. We need to turn to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, and let me draw your attention to, well, I'm going to go back to verse 1. Now, I say that the heir, as long as he as a child does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards, notice this, until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, I just want to pause right there, and it's implying that it's on a schedule. It's implying that there was a, a, a definite date and time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, Uh, to redeem those who are under the law. So we have, as we look at the first appointment, God's appointed time for Jesus is referred to here as the fullness of time. There's a lot of things being implied here. It's set, just like on a calendar. This is when it's going to happen. And he refers to it as the fullness of time. Um, I've entitled the message this morning, The Appointed Time. Jesus was not born, as you all know, on December 25th. (laughs) Probably September or October. Um, And um, I wouldn't even want to put down uh, time, except uh, this is something that was changed over. um, Actually, actually, uh, the beginning of the winter solstice. And... um, they simply took pagan holidays and Christianized them. And that's basically what you have um, with December 25th. All right, when that time did come, now let's turn to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Luke, 
chapter two, we'll pick it up in verse eight. And we have a setting that I'll be referring to several times this morning. And it's a place called the Shepherd's Fields. Verse eight, it says, now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, the first of all, notice it's singular, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and then the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were greatly afraid. Now, without exception, every time you see an angel referred to in the scripture, it brings not comfort but fear to the person who sees the angel. So any concept that you have of... Um, of um, um, Michelangelo, butterfly, bumblebee type angels. That's not the case at all. Evidently, they're warriors and um, they, they strike fear into those who see them. And they were greatly afraid, not just afraid, greatly afraid. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. Why did the angel say that? Because they were. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. We're going to be linking this morning Boaz and Ruth, King David and Solomon um, with Jesus. And here's the first link right here. Um, the city of David a Savior, which, who is Christ the Lord. He's referring to Bethlehem. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel now a multitude of a heavenly host proclaiming God and saying. Now you've got to understand what we just read in Galatians. The time had come. Fullness of time had come. Whether the angels knew about it or not, it's like like when you're a kid and you can't wait for Christmas to come. I mean, you're counting it down. (laughs) And you're just waiting for that time and that moment to come. Evidently, all of heaven knew of the fullness of time. I just don't think they can contain themselves. You know, one angel just told them, he's born, it's happened. The fullness of time is here. And I don't think heaven could hold back. I just think heaven blew open and the fullness of time had come, what they've been waiting for, God's plan throughout the ages to send his son. As we read in Galatians, to redeem you and I. And suddenly, and they were saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. Now, this is so misunderstood. Peace on earth. Question, (laughs) could anything be farther from the truth? Dominionism, or kingdom now theology, hang their hat on the scripture. Well, what is that? Uh, Dominionism, or kingdom now theology, is a teaching is that we as believers are going to evangelize the world to such a point that the world will become Christian. Then and only then, because peace on earth is gonna be brought through this child, through through your witness, and um, only then can the Lord return. Well, if you believe that in the days that we're living, Nothing could be farther than the truth. Christians are under attack like they've never been under attack before. And it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. 
I'll be talking more about this on, on um, New Year's Eve when we have our New Year's Eve service and give you an update on what's really going on in the world and just how bad uh, that really is. So we read in verse 15, so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made him known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. The fullness of time had come. And it was an appointed time. And here it's um, unfolding in the city of Bethlehem. All right. We now find God has an appointed time not only for the Lord's arrival, but he also has an appointed time for you and for me. And you need to turn to the book of Hebrews at this time, chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, I'll draw your attention to verse 27 and 28. Instead of a birth here, we're talking a death. It says in 9.27, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. In other words, there's a spirit of anticipation that the Lord could actually come at any time. And he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. But what I want to point out here is that you have an appointment. Who and what is the appointment for and with? Well, the day you die. It's been appointed that there is a time set um, for your death. The thing is, we don't know when that is. I just found out this morning about Don Warden. Um, part of our fellowship, December 20th, just a couple days ago. Um, I wasn't here. I left, when I left um, for a couple weeks, we took in a pre-trip conference down in Dallas, Judy and I did. Um, but Spoon was alive and well, David. And I didn't know that was going to be the last time I was going to see Spoon. And he was, the Lord took him home. He had an appointment. His appointment was December 12th at 6.46, an appointed day, appointed time, and the Lord called um, Spoon home. He called Don home. Um, If we're here for another Christmas, I'm sure I'm looking at people right now or on the internet, you're not going to be here. You have an appointment. And none of us knows when it's going to be. I have a friend, well, you all know Paul, um, he's in and out of ER every other day right now. I texted him last night and said, I'm not a Facebook guy, so people keep up to date on Facebook. And I said, Paul, how you doing, bro? 
And uh, he didn't get back with me until this morning. And he said, it's a dogfight. He says, but, uh, you know, it's all in the Lord's hand, which is another way of saying, uh, when it's time, it's time. But he had a heart attack, and it's ongoing. He's in and out of the ER. So we need to pray for our friend, but I'm not sure quite how I want to pray for him. The Apostle Paul said, look, I'd rather be with the Lord, but it's more important that I stay here for your sake so he can keep teaching God's word and leading person to, to, to people to Christ. Good place for an amen. amen. I mean, after, after um, um, just the wonder and the beauty of the desert and seeing it all, and you, th- you have great fellowship with the Lord and how beautiful heaven is gonna be, please don't feel sorry for any of these people. <laughs> They're suffering on this side and no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. But there are people who fear it and that that would happen to them. I want to do a little sidetrack here on God's order of time and events so that you just get a little picture of um, the perfection of the scriptures. Uh, Turn to the first chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. I was thinking of this while I was hiking And if you look at verse 17, chapter one, of course, is the genealogy of Jesus. And he begins with Abraham. I'll be coming back to Abraham, so remember Abraham here. So we read in verse 17, as we look at the genealogy, so the genealogy from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. And I'm thinking about the one that I knew for sure. I know that David reigned in 1000 BC. I know that they were taken into captivity in 445 BC. So I got out my calculator, started doing a little math. And there's 555 years there. And when you divide that by 14 generations, you come up with the number 40. And I thought, well, that's interesting because a lot of people consider that to be a generation. But I would never be dogmatic about it because it also tells us that the children of Israel spent four generations in Egypt. Well, they were there for 400 years. So now you got, some people say, well, it's 70 years because you got three score and 10. That's your generation. That's your lifespan. You can't be dogmatic. But I thought, how interesting. When you do the math from David to the captivity, it's exactly 14 generations. And that's a, every generation would have been, been 40 years. Turn with me. Um, Because my point here is, again, everything is laid out time-wise, calendar-wise. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 2. And let's talk about David and the day that he died. And the reason I'm looking at David and Saul and Solomon is they have one thing in common as far as their reign, and that is that they all reign for exactly 40 years. Years, we might say a generation. Coincidence? I don't think so. So we read in verse 10 of chapter 2 So David rested with his father and was buried in the city of David. 
The period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. Again, Saul reigned 40 years, David reigned 40 years, and we're going to find that Solomon is going to reign 40 years. But as Solomon, can you imagine slipping into the sandals of David and your Solomon? And you're young and you're immature. And um, chapter three, if you pick it up in verse three, tells us the young years when he feels terribly unqualified, inadequate, fearful. We read in verse three, and Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high place. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. And there Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask, what shall I give you? What do you want, Solomon? Don't people ask you that around this time? What do you want for Christmas? <laughs> Imagine the Lord coming down and say, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want. What do you want? Solomon said, you've shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because you walked before you in truth and righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him. You have given him a son to sit on his throne on this day. Now, therefore, my God, you've made your servant king instead of my father David but I'm a little child I don't know how to go out or to come in and in your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours now The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, because you have asked this thing, you have not asked for long life for yourself, you haven't asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of your enemies, but you've asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall there be one, anyone that will arise after you. Would you just let that set in for a second? Are we not a fellowship that believes the word of God, that it is inerrant, without error, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation? So if I'm to read that, Uh, and take it literally, what it's telling me is except for Jesus, there's never been anybody before Solomon or after Solomon who had more wisdom than Solomon. Give me an amen on that one. It's an important point to make at this point uh, as it pertains to the rest of our study. He wrote 1,005 songs, Solomon. He wrote 3,000 Proverbs. He wrote the books of Song of Solomon, the book of Proverbs, and the book of Ecclesiastes. 
I'd like to take you um, at this point to Ecclesiastes, one of his books, chapter 7. So I'll give you a moment to get there. It's right after the Proverbs. You have the Psalms, the Proverbs, and then the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, I quote these um, many times during funeral. Um, And we read in chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, it says, a good name is better than precious ointment. And then it says, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Well, we don't think that. We usually grieve when somebody dies and we're handing out cigars when, when a baby is born. We're happy, clappy, there's great joy. No, the wisest man who ever lives says it's the other way around. The day of your death is better than the day of your birth. And then he goes on to say, it's better to go to a funeral, the house of mourning, than it is to go to feasting. Let me put it in terms that you can understand. It is better to go to a funeral than it is to a Christmas party, seeing it's that time of year. It's better to go to a funeral than a Packer game. Not many of us would uh, agree with that one wholeheartedly. But who is saying these words? The wisest man who ever lived. But then he tells us why. Why is it better to go to a funeral than it is to a Christmas party? He says, for that is the end of all men, and there's not one person here who can change it. That's gonna happen to you. But his point that he's trying to make and the living will lay it to heart. Let's be honest. Are you thinking about your funeral at a Christmas party? Are you thinking of your funeral or, or the end of your days at a Packer game? No, you're not. But when might you consider it? When you're looking at a coffin and you said, I, I've known this person my whole life. And now he's not here. Or she's not here. I'm human too. And it's actually one of those places and moments where there's contemplation, meditation. The living will lay it to heart. Where? At a funeral. Because you're thinking about life and death. Where is he? What happened? Um, We we consider our appointed time. Um, I I thought I was going to have a heart attack um, last Sunday. I was watching the last two minutes of the Green Bay Packer Bear game. I couldn't sit, I couldn't sit down. I I walked past my wife and she says, where are you going? I said, to comb my hair. I couldn't do anything else. It was driving me crazy. My blood pressure had to be off the chart. But, you know, people have different opinions in the world in which we live today, and they're only getting worse. I met a guy at the pre-trib conference. We struck up a friendship, and um, he wanted my opinion on his particular Bible teacher, so he sent me a DVD, and in this DVD was uh, Madeline Marie O'Hara, um, the, the root core of atheism in America. She's sarcastic, she's angry, and she hates Christians more than anybody else on the planet. And when the topic of death came up, uh, this is, I'm watching her facial expressions. She says, look, you're crazy. When you're dead, you're dead. It's over. 
She died in 1995 at the age of 76. I believe she has a different opinion on that. Like the rich man um, who died and went to hell. Very conscious, very aware of the torment he was in. Maybe for the first time in his life, he considered his other five brothers. And he pleaded with Abraham, send Lazarus back and warn them of this place because I know they don't believe. It wasn't over for him. He was conscious, aware of pain, and loved ones that he could have told and didn't. There is gonna be tears in heaven for a season of time. God says he's gonna wipe them away, remember? I wonder why. I think it's gonna be wasted time, regrets, opportunities we had for fear, for whatever reason. We coulda, we shoulda, we didn't share with somebody who needed it. And we're gonna be, that consciousness evidently, at least for a while, is going to be there. And let's be honest, this is, this is a Christmas season. How many people will go to church simply because it's Christmas? There's those that come. And then they won't think about it until Easter time. <laughs> I call them CEOs. Christmas and Easter only. <laughs> but they have that opportunity in that time to consider. Um, Madeline Marine O'Hara and the seeds that she sowed are, I wish she had the chance where she could have it all over again. But the certainty is, what did we read? It is appointed unto man once to die, and then what? Then the judgment. There's no second chances. There's no reincarnation. There's no good karma, bad karma. If I got enough good karma, I'll be okay. No. Once to die. And then the judgment. Then we give an account. Sometimes we're not driven to seriously consider our own mortality like we read here, it's better to go to a funeral than it is to a party. Some of you are thinking, Dwight, this is Christmas. Can't you lighten it up a little bit? This is heavy stuff. This is supposed to be joy to the world and all that kind of stuff. No, there's, there's times and places where I think where the gospel should be most clearly presented is on Christmas and Easter. And... Um, I just think it's an interesting coincidence that we happen to be in John chapter 11 this morning. I'm getting ahead of myself. We have Job, godly man, rich man, and he lost everything in one day. He lost seven sons and three daughters and all of his possessions, and it all happened in one day. It's all taken away. And when that happens, when a tragedy hits, it slows a person down and it causes them to contemplate and meditate. And in Job 14, if you're taking notes, Job asks this question. The question that uh, Job asked was, if a man dies, will he live again? We don't understand the whole concept of being here and then being there. But Corinthians says to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. It's an instantaneous event that takes place. 
but we often don't think about it or ask the question. Well, he did, but what drove him to ask the question? The loss of loved ones, the loss of everything that, that he had. It made him ask the question, if a man dies, will he live again? No real answers to that question until Jesus came. Now that brings us back to our text, John chapter 11. So let's go back to John chapter 11. Paul read it for us earlier. Um, Jesus is down by Jericho. It would take a couple days to get there. Um, He would often stay with Mary and Martha and Lazarus whenever he was in Jerusalem. Uh, He loved them. Uh, We're told uh, in the first couple verses that he loved Mary and Martha. Lazarus gets sick. They know that the Lord's on his way. They send an urgent message. Lord, hurry up. Lazarus, the one who you love, he's sick. So he gets the message and he stays there for two more days. And then he finally says, okay, guys, we're going to go. And this is verse 11. He says, let's go to uh, Jerusalem because our friend Lazarus sleeps. But I'm going to go wake him up. And they're just taking it at face value what he said. And they said, Lord, well, you know, if he's sick, let him rest. And so he had to tell them plainly, no, sleep here, without exception for the Christian, is always used for death because you never die. And um, so they don't understand, so he has to tell them straight out, Lazarus is dead. Uh, And I'm glad, for your sake, that I was not there that you might believe. Nevertheless, let's go. Now the reason uh, Thomas jumps in here um, is remember one of the main parts of the Gospel of John is the opposition, and we're in that part of it right now, chapter 5 through 12. The, the main point is opposition against Jesus. And they're looking for him. That's why Thomas says, well, we'll die with you, because they, they knew that they wanted to kill Jesus. And so when he, verse 17, when they had found that he had already been in the tomb for four days, um, Bethany is near Jerusalem, a couple miles away. A great big funeral uh, procession was there for Martha and Mary, just to comfort. That's usually what we're supposed to do when loved ones pass. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, But Mary was sitting in the house. Mary is always sitting when you read about her. Then Martha said to Jesus, now I I firmly believe that there's an attitude in her voice. She's grieving the loss of her brother and she knows Jesus is the Messiah. She totally believes that. And she knows that the, the Lord would have had the ability to save his life. And he didn't show up. He got the message in plenty of time. What does he do? He stays two more days. So I think there's, there's a tone in Martha's voice. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's the way I read that. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he'll give it to you. And the Lord casually says, your brother will rise again. She's thinking at the resurrection. And Martha said to him, Lord, I know he will at the resurrection to the last day. And then here we have one of the I am statements. I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me, though he may die, shall live. Why? And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he looks at her straight on. Do you believe this? Now, Jesus' answer to Martha here is a very important question. Do you believe this? Why is it so important? Well, it answers Job's question. If a man dies, will he live again? And now the Lord is coming right out, eyeball to eyeball with Martha. Martha, he who lives in belief said me, though he may die, he will never die if you believe in me. Do you believe this? You see, my friends, the question isn't really whether or not um, a person dies. Do you know that nobody ever dies? Every person here has a soul. Every person here has a spirit. Both are eternally, are eternal. The question isn't do you die or not. The question is you're going to live. The question should rather be where are you going to spend eternity? What did we read about our appointed time? It is appointed unto man once to die, and then what? And then the judgment of what? Revelation 20 says, your works. And we're talking about every work. The first dirty thought you ever thought. Every lie you ever ever told. Everything you ever stole. has all been written in the books because it says they were judged by the works. Now the last thing that I want is to be judged by my works. Good place for an amen. Amen. Isn't it good news that we're saved by grace and grace alone and neither you or I are in the equation of our salvation? It's a gift that has to be received. And so we find um, here this very famous verse, do you believe this? I want to give an Old Testament picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the book of Ruth. It's four chapters long. We're not going to read all four chapters. But I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Ruth. It's right after the Judges. Why is it right after the Judges? Because it's a slice of life of how people lived during the time before the first king who was Saul. So we read in verse one. Well, I'm going to read the first five verses of uh, Ruth It came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, the names of his sons were Maon and Chilion, Ephraites of Bethlehem of Judah. And he went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. Now they took wives of the woman of Moab, the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelt there about 10 years. Then both Melion and Chilion also died, so the woman survived with her two, uh, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Naomi loses everything, and all she has are these two Gentile um, daughter-in-laws from their, from their um, time in, in Moab. 
All of chapter one is um, Naomi say, I have nothing left here, I'm going back to Bethlehem. So she talks one of them, Orpha, to stay behind and find another husband. And she tells Ruth to do the same thing, but Ruth would have nothing to do with it. And she says, please don't, don't tell me to leave or to go back. For our, Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you lodge, I'm going to lodge. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I'm going to die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but me, but death passes from me. So what we have in chapter one, famine. They have to leave where there's food. They're there for 10 years and now they're returning in verse 19 to Bethlehem and it tells us in the last verse here that when they arrive it was the beginning of the barley season. In other words, it was harvest time. Now in chapter two we're introduced to a man whose name is Boaz and he's a relative. Let's just read verse one. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband a man of great wealth, that's important for our story, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. So here we're introduced to a relative. And um, he's wealthy, owns a lot of property, and they're poor. Now, they had um, a social program set up in those days that if you owned a field, you couldn't harvest the whole field. You had to leave the corners unpicked because the poor people could come and glean uh, the edges of the field and that way they would survive. Well, I think, I think Boaz takes one look at Ruth and he, he knows the story. It tells us here he knows she's a virtuous woman. I believe she was also a very beautiful woman and I think it was love at first sight when Boaz sets his eyes on, on Ruth. And... Um, so she's gleaning in Boaz's field. And um, Boaz calls the foreman's over and says, oh, who's that gal there? Well, that's Ruth, you know, the one that came back with Naomi from Moab. And he says, come here, boys. He says, what? Hands off. You leave her alone. Not only do you leave her alone, but you let her glean with you. And not only that, I want you to take some out of your own bag and sort of go like this on the side. And so when she came home from gleaning that day, she came in with her arms full like this, and Naomi says, where in the world have you been gleaning today? And she says, oh, um, this guy, real nice guy, treated me real nice. His uh, name is Boaz. And that brings us to chapter three. I'll read the first verse here. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Because Boaz, whose young woman you were, uh, is he not our kinsman? He's family. Now here's how it worked in Israel. You could sell your land, and, uh, but it remained perpetually in the family. And it could be passed on to uh, relatives. Remember when you, they went into the land, everybody got a piece of land? But what happens if you get really poor? You got to sell it. There, you always had in the law the right of redemption. 
And if you didn't have the money to do it, you could actually have a relative do it for you. So who is Boaz? Well, he's a kinsman redeemer. The word there is goel. And so what does Naomi start doing here? She starts to play Yentl. Does everybody know who Yentl is? Matchmaker. Matchmaker, maker. don't make me sing it, please. Make me a match. That's what she's doing. Shall I not find security for you? This, her brain's spinning. He's a kinsman. He's rich. All the fields that you're glinting in, they all belong to him. And so in chapter three, basically what we have is uh, Naomi setting the stage for chapter, uh, chapter four. And now the barley harvest season is over and they're har- having a barley harvest party where all the men get together. They have a lot of food and... Um, um, they sleep by their stash so that nobody takes it. So Naomi pulls Ruth aside and says, listen up, Ruth. I want you to find your prettiest dress. I want you to comb your hair. And uh, I want you to go only after it's dark. Boaz is going to be sleeping by his grain. And I want you to go uncover his feet and lay down next to him. So we read about midnight. Um, I think an angel probably kicked him in his side. I'm not sure. But he wakes up, and he looks down, and here's Ruth sleeping at his feet. And he goes, what in the world are you doing here? And she basically says, will you fulfill your role as a kinsman redeemer? In other words, will you buy back Elimelech's and Naomi's farm and um, I would be part of the deal to keep the name of the family alive. I think uh, what he says at this point, he says, you betcha. (laughs) He says, we got one little problem here and the problem is that I'm not the nearest kinsman. There's one even closer than me. So when we get to chapter four, we read, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the near kinsman of Boaz came by, so Boaz said, come aside, friend. King James says, hold such a one, I like that better. And sit down, so he sat down, and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. This is how business was done. A transaction is going to be made. Now, last month this time we were in Israel. We, we visited the Tel Dan, which is an ancient city. And the gates of the city are still there. And there's a special place, and as a matter of fact, they have a plaque up on here quoting these verses that I just read. So I, I got ahead of our group because I wanted to have a little fun. So I got ahead of our group, and while they're coming in the gate, I'm sitting at what would have been where the business would have been done. And so as they're coming in, they're not quite sure what I'm doing, but I said, okay, uh, I need 10 guys. I want you, 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 you. All stand over here. And then everybody's kind of wondering what's going on. And he says, I want it to be known this day that everything that belonged to Elimelech, I need 10 witnesses. There's the 10 men. Are you guys listening up, I said? I said, are you bearing witness that everything that belonged to Elimelech now belongs to me? Well, first of all, he's got to get rid of the other guy, right? How do you get rid of the other guy? 
He says, you know that piece of property that Elimelech owned? It's yours. You're next in line. I'll take it. Great piece of land. He says, oh, by the way, the day that you take it, you also have to marry Ruth to keep the family name alive. He says, I can't do that. My wife will kill me. <laughs> well, I don't know if exactly what he said, but it could have been that she was Gentile. Jews don't marry Gentiles. So whatever his reasoning for it, he's, he's out, Boaz is in, and he's one happy camper. Now, the question is, why is he so interested in the property of Elimelech? The answer to that question is, he's not. He's a very wealthy man. I'm gonna show you a picture of, well, let me see if I wanna put it up. Not quite yet. So, the way you signed the contract in those days was you take off your sandal and hand it over. And that's what he did. And by doing so, all the people in that town knows that everything that was Elimelech now belongs to Boaz. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Remember I told you the gospel is in the book of Ruth. Matthew chapter 13 is a two-verse parable, the parable of the hidden treasure. So we read in verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hid in a field, which what a man found and hid for joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys the field. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven, um, this is often misquoted in commentaries and Bible studies, and they say, well, that's, you're the one who has to leave all so that you can gain the kingdom of heaven. And um, we sing the song, I surrender all. My second verse of that is, oh, no, you don't. Who is the only one that gave up everything to come down here? He gave up all of it. He set aside all of his glory, and he was born in a manger. It was his appointed time that had come. Why did he purchase this planet? Was it to have another planet? How many billions of galaxies out there? How many billions of stars are in those billions of galaxies? You think he needs one more? No, he came and he paid the price. He bought, it says, this planet with his own blood. Did he do it to buy the planet? No, no, no. He bought it because of the treasure that went with it. Well, who's that treasure? For God loved you so much. He loved you so much that he laid it all aside. He's the only one who can make that claim. He says, don't think I've come to destroy the law. I haven't come to destroy it. I come to fulfill it. Well, what does that mean? That means he lived a perfect life. Never lied, never stole, never had a lustful thought. He was the perfect lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He had to be a lamb without blemish and spot. That's what John the Baptist says, there he is. There's a lamb of God who's gonna take away the sins of the world. And he purchased the field because of the treasure that was in it. The book of Ruth is a story about a wealthy landowner 
the wealthy landowner purchased uh, what we call the shepherd's fields. If you go back to um, Ruth, I, I want to read the last four ver- verses of Ruth. Matter of fact, you don't have to. I'll just read it myself. So this is how it ends, verse 17. <clears throat> now the neighbors are commending them in verse 17. And the na- neighbor woman gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. So Boaz and Ruth had a son. They called him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. In other words, King David's grandfather was Obed. They're both from Bethlehem. Put on the screen the picture I have of, of the shepherd's fields at this time. We were just there. And it's relatively unchanged. The city in the background on a hill is Bethlehem. But what I I want to point out is David lived 1000 BC. And um, here we have um, 1000 years, no, 3000 BC. David lived in 3000 BC. Jesus was born in these same fields 1000 years later. So what impresses me in my favorite spot in Israel is probably the shepherd's fields. Why? The story of Boaz and Ruth took place in that field right there. Um, David was a shepherd. Where? In those very fields, a thousand years later. And then who? Would, then Jesus, of course, was, was born, and this is where the angels appeared, all in this one spot. And I like to say, talk about having the Bible come alive when you're in Israel. You see all this history, but what blows me away is relatively unchanged. Those are still, there's not homes and houses there. They're terraced land. And um, usually I can get, um, um, there's some uh, Bedouins that have sheep. And I usually just wave my hand and they'll actually come over with the sheep. Well, the little boy saw me and he came over because he knows he's gonna get money. And I tried, he does speak English, so I'm trying to tell him, go get the sheep, go get the sheep. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't leave because somebody had already given him a couple bucks and he's not going anywhere now. <laughs> and so I had to tell him to leave so we could finish up our Bible study. Let's go back to, and let's begin um, uh, to to wind this up, but all this history, it's Christmas. The shepherds were in the field when the angel appeared to him. So many things happened in the shepherd's field. As we begin to close this up this morning, I guess... um, I'll leave you with these thoughts. There's no guarantees you're going to be here next Christmas. Why? Because you have an appointed time. Do you know what it is? No. No guarantees. Um, Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21 we have a relation of Madeline O'Hara. 
Let's pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 12. Then one of the crowds said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And then the Lord said, Better be careful, take heed of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he has. Then he spoke a certain parable, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plenty. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I know what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my crops and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you've many goods laid up for many years. Take, Take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Right now, this time of year, a lot of people are doing a lot of reflecting. You know what they're thinking? How do we do this year? What's the bottom line? Are we doing good? Are we doing bad? And as we're thinking about those things, the Lord is basically saying, you're missing a forest for the trees. You have no guarantees. So the Lord calls this guy a fool because he was so successful and he had made all these preparations except for the most important one. It says your very soul is required of you this night and you're not gonna be able to take one of those things that you work so hard for with you. And he says your appointment, it would be the way I would actually say this, your appointment um, is tonight. And he didn't consider it. Um, He was more on Madeline O'Hara's way of thinking. Turn with me, this will be the last one, Second Peter chapter three, and I'll beg the question, if this is indeed the case, then what should we do? Francis Schaeffer would say, how should we then live? In light, if we have an appointment and we don't know where it is, where should we be storing our treasures? Where should we be applying our time and our resources? Second Peter chapter three, Picking it up in verse eight says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Again, we, time, we have a factor of time here. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but it's long suffering. Praise the Lord for that. Towards us, he's not willing that any should perish, implying that some will but that all should come to repentance. Without repentance, my friends, uh, there's no conversion. There has to be an acknowledgement that what the Bible says about my sin is true and I need to turn from it. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, because all this is gonna be gone and you can't take it with you anyway, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be? In holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. We should always be thinking, the theme 
that Tommy has at the end of it. He always says, Maranatha. That means the Lord cometh, or perhaps today. We should always be living with the mentality, not eat, drink, be merry, but today could be my appointment. And I just don't know when that is. Because it's all going to be dissolved anyway. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth. It's better to be investing in those things. Now we have another therefore. Beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. An account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. And it, I'll leave you with this closing question about Christmas because everybody's talking about gifts and presents and, and all that. The greatest gift ever offered is what Jesus told Martha Martha, I am the resurrection, I am the life. He who lives and believes in me is never going to die. Here's my question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And what you believe, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He will never twist your arm. He will never rant and rave at you when you get red in the face and um, try to persuade you except that you should know that he's not willing that any would perish. See, ball's in your court. Free will is everything. But we have to understand what he did before we can receive the gift. So the closing question is, do you believe this, Martha? Romans 6.23, the last verse, for the wages of sin is death, and it's eternal. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christmas time, time to receive gifts. Have you received the greatest gift that's ever been offered? Or have you been indifferent? Or say, well, maybe I'll get around to it some way or someday. Nah, I believe Madeline's right when it's over, it's over. Don't play Russian roulette with your soul. Don't let another day go by without agreeing with what is the answer to Job's question. If a man dies, will he live again? Jesus put it right out there. If you live and believe in me, you'll never die. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word as we make our way through uh, the gospel of John. Uh, the timing of it this morning, Lord, we see your hand in it. And Lord, if any have that are in the sound of my voice this morning have never um, really understood what Christmas is all about, that when the fullness of time came, that you sent your son to pay the payment for our sins. We thank you for the wonder of your Old Testament pictures of New Testament truth, how we see a Gentile marrying a Jew, Boaz the Jew marrying a Gentile, What a beautiful picture of Jesus, a Jew, having a Gentile bride for his his wife. We we marvel, Lord, at your word, and uh, we pray for the holiday seasons. Lord, open up doors for us. Give us opportunities um, not to be afraid to confess you before men. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In holy conduct and godliness, looking for 
and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. We should always be thinking, the theme that Tommy has at the end of it, he always says, Maranatha. That means the Lord cometh, or perhaps today. We should always be living with the mentality, not eat, drink, be merry, but today could be by appointment. And I just don't know when that is. Because it's all gonna be dissolved anyway. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for a new heaven and a new earth. It's better to be investing in those things. Now we have another therefore. Beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And it, I'll leave you with this closing question about Christmas because everybody's talking about gifts and presents and, and all that. The greatest gift ever offered is what Jesus told Martha. Martha, I am the resurrection, I am the life. He who lives and believes in me is never going to die. Here's my question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And what you believe, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He will never twist your arm. He will never rant and rave at you when you get red in the face and um, try to persuade you except that you should know that he's not willing that any would perish. See, ball's in your court. Free will is everything. But we have to understand what he did before we can receive the gift. So the closing question is, do you believe this, Martha? Romans 6.23, the last verse, for the wages of sin is death, and it's eternal. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christmas time, time to receive gifts. Have you received the greatest gift that's ever been offered? Or have you been indifferent? Or say, well, maybe I'll get around to it some way or someday. Nah, I believe Madeline's right when it's over, it's over. Don't play Russian roulette with your soul. Don't let another day go by without agreeing with what is the answer to Job's question. If a man dies, will he live again? Jesus put it right out there. If you live and believe in me, you'll never die. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word as we make our way through uh, the gospel of John. Uh, the timing of it this morning, Lord, was your hand in it. And Lord, if any have that are in the sound of my voice this morning have never um, really understood what Christmas is all about, that when the fullness of time came that you sent your son to pay the payment for our sins we thank you for the wonder of your old testament pictures of new testament truth how we see a gentile marrying a jew boaz the jew marrying a gentile what a beautiful picture of jesus a jew having a gentile bride for his his wife we, we marvel, Lord, at your word, and uh, we pray for the holiday seasons. Lord, open up doors for us. Give us opportunities um, not to be afraid to confess you before men. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.